If at first you don't succeed, well, change the subject. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com down in San Antonio. A lot to talk about this week, Jeremy. By the way, we are uh, taping on Thursday and doing a rare Friday morning release of the show, because you know how people like to listen to this show. They either enjoy their adult beverages on Friday evening with it, or they work out on Saturdays. You know, people might jog around the lake or you know, go to the gym and listen to the show on Saturday. Uh, maybe some of the same kind of thing happens on Sunday, or people just you know, lay in bed and drink coffee on Sunday morning and, and listen to it. Or on Monday, people will listen to it during their morning commute, all, you know, all the way to work in Houston, San Antonio, or Austin, Dallas-Fort Worth, or wherever else around the world. But now people can listen to it at lunch on Friday. Perfect. How's that? How's that for customer service? All right. So I'm saying that to say things could change between now and when the show comes out on Friday morning. We might have the official word of the special session that's coming up. The governor has already said that it's going to happen. He's still working out the details on exactly what day it's going to start. But we now have a new subject for the special session. Wasn't this all supposed to be about, quote, school choice and school vouchers? That's what the big push from the governor has been. And I'm not going to read too much into this, although I will say that if the governor anticipates that he's not going to get a victory on school vouchers, maybe he'd like to get a victory about something else. So so he's adding this to the special session. He announced this on on Fox and Friends, on Fox News Channel. He was in New York. It's kind of Abbott takes New York. Um, He was in Manhattan to talk about a few different things. And while he was on um, Fox News Channel, he was talking about the latest um, sort of cause celeb on the right, which is this, um, I, I hate to use the word issue. It's this, um, anger, this outrage over what looks just to be a subdivision near Houston. Um, the shorthand, uh, the title for this is colony Ridge. That's the name of the subdivision. Um, and there have been some, in fact, maybe only one guy really uh, sort of on the right who's been talking about this for a little while, and all of a sudden it has become this big push on conservative media to try to do something about this subdivision in which, wait for it, undocumented immigrants live. There are all these people who are undocumented who are living there. People are angry about it. I, I love seeing around the country people suddenly, uh, you know, just beside themselves that undocumented people live in Texas. And a bunch of them live in the subdivision. What is this deal, Jeremy? Yeah, there's this uh, there's this group called the Center for Immigration. Uh, uh, they're kind of at the heart of this. They've been going on these conservative media shows saying that you know this Colony Ridge subdivision uh, somehow is some sort of beacon for illegal immigrants to buy property. Um, you know, the thing that you know what, what's kind of threw me off is like all, they're making it sound like it's just like now happening but this mm-hmm. development has been uh in you know the liberty county and mm-hmm. you know a little bit into montgomery county and a couple other counties yeah you know, it's it's been there since 2011 so it's not oh. like this just happened last night you know it's like this mm-hmm. it's been there for a long time but there's been this weird connection where people think that for some reason it's become a beacon for illegal immigration Somehow, I don't get it. Like, I keep listening to this guy, uh, Todd Bensman, who's been you know yeah. pro- 
pushing it. He never really connects the dots. He just says stuff like, like, okay, well, there's a lot of illegal immigration at the border. Mm-hmm. There's this community outside of Houston. There are migrants there, I think. You know, people from all kinds of countries are there. And then you're supposed to connect the dots somehow. <laughs> it's like, even though that pretty much describes like Texas, <laughs> like, it's a diverse state at this point. You can find diverse mm-hmm. neighborhoods everywhere, you know, but for some reason they've honed in on uh, Colony Ridge, uh, again, right outside of Houston. Yeah. So Governor Abbott on Fox and Friends said that the quote issue of Colony Ridge is going to be included in the special session in October. Here's how it sounded when Abbott was asked about it on Fox News. The allegation is this little community is housing illegals, advertising to illegals. And as you know, in 2015, we banned sanctuary cities in the state of Texas. So what's exactly going on? I know there's a special session that's going to be going on, and this will be an item on that special session. So absolutely. First, importantly, so all Texans and Americans know, uh, I signed a law, SB4, uh, that bans sanctuary cities in the state of Texas. Uh, We're looking for the application of that law to what's going on in Colony Ridge. However, we're we're taking this very serious in uh, what we have done to make sure we have law and order in that area. I deployed uh, the Texas Texas Department of Public Safety to patrol the region. The Texas Department of Public Safety has special agents that are undertaking investigations about what's going on there. Uh, we deployed the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality to make sure that whatever's going on there uh, is not posing any type of environmental problem. And the state of Texas issued subpoenas uh, to the company that's in charge of all this uh, to find out the financial background and find out exactly what's going on. So let's say there are undocumented people living there, as they do all over Texas and really all over the country. Uh, What are state lawmakers supposed to do about that in a special session? When we have a special session and and have bills proposed dealing with it, we're going to have legislative hearings that will surface uh, the information about whether or not those allegations are true or not, and uh, if they're true, what we can do to stop it. Jeremy, it sounds like they're going to hold hearings potentially to ask questions about this development that, as you said, has been there uh, since 2011 and figure out if the state government can do anything about keeping undocumented people from living there. You know, when people are so angry about undocumented immigrants and about illegal immigration, it seems like it doesn't matter what the facts are. Folks will just stay angry. Let me give you the prime example. It's what we're talking about right now. Uh, We're just uh, on last week's show, we were talking about folks who were mad about people who that who are said to be a drain on public services, but those people can't get work permits when they have been taken to places like New York City or D.C. or L.A. Uh, or wherever. So you would say, hey, get them a work permit so that they can earn their own way and pay for their own stuff. Well, in this case, you have people who are apparently working and paying for their own homes, even though the you know, the mortgage situation, the lending situation might be a little bit different um, than what a lot of people would use. Just go to a traditional uh, company to to get a mortgage and make a payment every month. But these are people who are paying for their own homes. In other words, paying their own way. And so we're, now we're mad about that. These are people who are working, apparently, paying a mortgage, maybe in a non-traditional way. But those kind of mortgages, I can tell you, those kind of lending arrangements have been around since way before 2011. There have been a lot of folks who don't have the right paperwork, quote unquote, who still make a living and are contributing members of society in Texas and other places, particularly here, uh, where you have so many jobs that are open to people who are undocumented, uh, you know, be that in uh, construction, 
agriculture, hospitality, whatever, those folks earn a living, they pay for their house, and now apparently those folks don't even want them to do that. Yeah, there seems to be like uh, uh, this misunderstanding, particularly from a lot of people on the super far right, that you know people who are not U.S. citizens uh, somehow buying land is bad, right? You know, or buying property is bad. You saw it happen during that last legislative session where they talked about mm-hmm. Chinese nationals buying land. Oh, right. And mm-hmm. now this th- this report from Fox almost kind of feels like it's kind of pushing in that direction where it's like, can you believe people who aren't U.S. citizens are buying up this land? And that's certainly firing up a p- part of the crowd. But the thing is, but I don't think a lot of the, maybe the viewers are kind of understanding is like, there's nothing that prohibits people from other countries from buying land in this country. Let's give a good example. Uh, Victor Wembayama, the new you know San Antonio Spurs starting center, or not mm-hmm. starting yet, but he will be soon. Mark my oh, words. Yeah. But he's mm-hmm. a French citizen. If you if you put something in the law that bans people from other countries from buying land, you're you're stopping him from buying land, aren't you? Right. It's like you know, it's like it just it, it's clearly a weird kind of conversation where people from other countries and other places, foreigners, tourists, visitors, whatever you want to call them, have always been able mm-hmm. to buy land in texas and anywhere else in the united states there's nothing that prohibits it but there seems to be this movement in a corner of the fox viewership where they don't want this happening and it's fueled by some of that conversation around we can't let chinese nationals buy land and it's like oh wait we can't let russians uh, buy land either oh then cubans and then you start keep adding to the list and like at what point then would you say okay nobody who uh, is a non-citizen isn't allowed to buy land? Is that what they're mm-hmm. kind of looking for? That would be a huge step in the entire American commerce, you know, setup. Yeah, mm-hmm. our entire U.S. Constitution, I think, would have to change in some regard to prevent that from happening. But clearly, people don't like the idea. Again, you got to remember, it's like foreigners are all kinds of people. <laughs> yes. Again, they might be the starting center of your you know, basketball franchise. <laughs> so be careful what you do. <laughs> or they may just be people here trying to create a better life, you know, build exactly. a home and have their family and have their kids there. Um, and, the, I mean, the, um, the arguments um, against migration into Texas, uh, but only from the South. All the migration from the North is just fine, by the way, in Texas. Nobody has any problem with that. If people come across the Red River, nobody cares. If they're coming across the Rio Grande, oh, wow, it's the end of the world. Um, If these people are here, there is a certain group of people who only demand that it is highlighted how much they cost in terms of public services. So for example, these folks will say, hey, they're costing us so much when it comes to the to uh, public education. You know, these kids, because they live in the United States, uh, it's federal law that if they live within the boundaries of a school district, they can go to school there, and that's paid for through tax dollars. Um, but what these folks don't want to look at is how much these people are contributing, right? And you saw this on display in the Texas Senate a few sessions ago. I want to say this was either four or six years ago, all the sessions run together on me at some point, Jeremy, but there was a proposal, I think it was from Bob Hall, who's one of the Republican senators from uh, North Texas, uh, from east of Dallas. Hall wanted a study on the cost of undocumented immigrants in Texas, the cost to to government in, in Texas, state and local government. And when there was an amendment offered for his study to also include the benefit, the economic benefit of the people being here, that was rejected by Republicans on the floor of the Senate. And the argument they made was, well, we don't want to give people any information that would encourage illegal behavior. 
Well, I mean, the counter argument to that, of course, is wouldn't you want to know what the actual impact was overall, whether or not these people, if you say that they're a drain, you're literally going to keep the information out of the study that would show that they're not a drain, that actually they are a net contributor economically to the state of Texas and, you know, to the United States. The, the only other time or the last time that Texas government did a real study on, you know, the, the economic impact of undocumented folks here, that's when Carol Keaton Rylander Strayhorn, <laughs> who I remember Ke- uh, Kinky Friedman used to say her name, that he, he would joke that her name was uh, Carol Keaton Rylander Strayhorn Cougar Mellencamp. She, when she was the comptroller, they did a study. It was the, the last one they've done on economic impact of undocumented people. And of course, it was, a, it was an econom- economic benefit it was a positive impact to the Texas economy to have all these folks here working, which just makes sense. They're, you know, making money and they're paying for stuff like homes in Colony Ridge. Yeah. And they're in there, you know, helping with all kinds of jobs in this, you know, state that others aren't doing. Right. You know, it's like, you know, think about the construction industry and the agriculture industries and the hospitality industries. You know, it's like these people, you know, those people need to work someplace, you know, and they need to live someplace as well. It's like somehow you know, some segments want to separate those two things. It's like, okay, I want my hotel room looking nice. I want my food. I want my house, you know, built and my roof repaired and all this other stuff. But they want to have to deal with the actual question of, you know, who is, who are, who are the people doing that work? Uh, some of them might not be documented or, you know, holding a green card at this point. So it's like, so now what? Do you want to give all that stuff up too? We, again, it goes back, I know it feels like, like, you know, part 196 of at some point we got to deal with comprehensive immigration reform. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to take this thing on, but at some point somebody's got to say, okay, how do we make sure we have the amount of workers that we need and we prevent people from coming across who we don't know who they are. It's like there's got to be a way to do both those things at the same time and have an adult conversation, or we can just go on Fox News and talk about some subdivision outside of Houston. <laughs> yeah, now Pick your if, choice. If, Which one's more fun? <laughs> if ominous music playing in the background of images of a subdivision did not scare you enough about immigration, well, then the next thing you do, of course, is show the border where there has been a migrant surge. Um, and who would you want uh, to have weigh in on this if you're really trying to scare people? How about our junior senator, Ted Cruz? Here he is in Washington talking about the surge in migrant crossings, and he's taking aim at the Biden administration for doing nothing about it. Jeremy, they have been saying that this is Biden's border crisis. Reason Biden doesn't, doesn't go to the border, the reason Kamala Harris and other Democrats don't go to the border, because if they did, y'all would follow. The press would follow. And their only defense, they cannot defend what they're doing. Their only defense is to cover it up. Corrine Jean-Pierre stands at the White House podium and says, people are not just walking across the border. It's not happening. There's a technical legal term for what that is. That's called bullshit. Now, Cruz is an Ivy League trained attorney, so he knows what he's talking about when it comes to those legal terms, like bullshit. Democratic (laughs) congressman from Austin Greg Kassar, uh, said that Texas border policies, including Operation Lone Star, that's, of course, Governor Abbott's multi-billion dollar border security operation, Kassar says it's inhumane and misses the point. We must stop the dangerous, expensive, corrupt, and ineffective political stunts at the border and instead chart a new path 
for a safe, orderly, and humane immigration system. Abbott's Operation Lone Star must end, and I urge passage of my good friend Mr. Castro's amendment to ensure federal funding does not go to this failed program. Every day, Texas Governor Greg Abbott violates the rights of asylum seekers and violates the rights of our border communities, all to score political points against President Biden. We have seen these inhumane policies in action that have taken the lives of children at the border, and we have lost National Guardsmen uh, to death. This is not only inhumane, but Operation Lone Star is not effective. Abbott is lighting $25 million on fire every week to cause suffering instead of creating solutions. Now, even if you don't agree with Gassar about the um, human rights violations he's talking about, which I do agree, actually, on, on some of that, and you also heard uh, the consequences to some of the people who are deployed there, right? We've covered this over the last couple of years. We've had uh, deaths uh, among uh, those folks who have been deployed for border security operations to the point where we're starting to cover this as if it was an, a, you know, an actual war zone, an actual military deployment, uh, because people are away from their families. There's a cost in human life to the people who have been deployed. There are these human uh, human rights violations of people getting caught up in razor wire, getting caught on the border buoy system, the floating border wall deal. Um, But even if you, let's say you don't care about any of that. What about the part where Kassar says, and no one would dispute it, that $25 million a week in your tax money as as a Texas resident, $25 million a week is being spent for border security. And on Fox News Channel, they are still able to point to the video that Ted Cruz is so mad about where so many people are coming across the border. Right to what you said, Jeremy, if you wanted to fix any of that, you have to do it on both ends. You have to have border security and you have to have immigration reform. And the parties in Washington are just not aligned at all on that. The You, know, the, you, would, you would have to have the stars be perfectly aligned for an immigration um, you know, policy to be passed by Congress, the stars are completely out of whack. They're nowhere close to talking about anything like that. Well, it, well, it's interesting because even as you know, Ted Cruz was talking there, uh, it made me remember. Like, so, so if you look at uh, my Wednesday newsletter, I kind of had an ode to what you had talked about before about how. The people who keep saying there's an open border are typically the Republicans who are accusing Democrats of having it. But that right. message, when it gets you know cut through down into you know, Central America, it's coming out a very different way. The Dallas Morning News uh, had an exclusive uh, from uh, America's Voice, a national advocacy group that did a uh, you know, that's pushing for immigration reform. They did a poll mm-hmm. uh, of people in Central America, and one out of four people think that the border is open. <laughs> they think that you know, <laughs> and where are they getting that message? from they're seeing greg abbott and ted cruz and <laughs> saying the border's open you know every day and it's just a, talking about rolling out the red carpet so it just it kind of speaks to like because look none of the democrats are talking about an open border we know that's not in their talking points what have you it's like whether the border is open or not it's not part of their phrase phrasing obviously but uh but you just kind of see this like I, at what point by the constant drumbeat of the border being open are we creating our own problem? Right. You know, are we making the problem worse? And and nobody, you know, politically has the incentive to really solve it. Right. Because there's mm-hmm. too many political points to score. You know, if you fix this thing, like if you if we fixed it, what would we talk about? You know, how would we win that next election next November would be, become the question. What's the big driving issue now? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, let's just stick with this. This is better. <laughs> 
Well, it certainly works um, in a Republican primary. It is the issue that inflames the Republican base the most over the last, really the best, the better part of two decades, at least for 15 years in this state and elsewhere, we have seen that the GOP base, this, is a, this predates Donald Trump's candidacy by a lot, right? A bit, yes. People think, a lot of folks who just sort of caught up with it in 2016 when Trump starts talking about building a wall and having Mexico pay for it and all that stuff, he was tapping into a political environment that already existed for at least a decade before that, where yeah. the Republican base is so fired up about this every single day, and it doesn't matter, I've said it before, I'll say it again, it doesn't matter what the migration patterns are like at that time, it doesn't matter what kind of uh, you know what uh, you know what kind of relief the immigrants are seeking, whether that's just economic relief or coming from a poor place or uh, seeking asylum because they're coming from a war torn place. None of that matters to the Republican base. They're just always pissed about this. Yeah, always angry about it. The intensity never goes down. They're always mad about it, even if it's not that big of a problem. If it does become a bigger problem, they stay the same level of mad about it. It's sort of like the boy that cried wolf. Like you're always mad about this thing. On the and so for Donald Trump to come in and go, oh, we're going to build a wall. We're going to have Mexico pay for it. All this other stuff. Well, they built some wall. Mexico never paid for any of that. You paid for that. Um, and if you look at the Democratic side, I think for them, it just doesn't have the same juice. Right. It just doesn't have the same punch for Democrats. You hear, you know, folks like Kassar or the Castros will punch back on this. They represent Latino communities that feel and rightly feel that they're, you know, under assault over this whole thing. Those folks punch back. You don't hear, you know, why. And I'll get some notes about this, I'm sure. But, you know, in a, in a broad sense, you don't see a lot of, you know, sort of white Democratic liberals speaking out the way that the Castros or Kassar would be speaking out. It doesn't occur to their benefit. Again, we're yeah. talking about people. Again, for the you know, for a lot of these folks, we're talking about people who can't vote. They're not documented, and you hear nonstop from Republicans with this crazy fever dream, uh, you know, conspiracy theory stuff about a subdivision in Texas that by, that just looked like any other subdivision to me when they were showing the overhead picture of it and and playing the you know the nefarious music in the background. Colony Ridge. Okay, all right. You could have shown any place with curvy streets. But I'm sitting there watching this and thinking that these Republicans are going to amp up their base about it once again. Have we reached a point in American politics, though, where all they can do with it is really win in their primaries, which in Texas, of course, is the election of consequences, I say all the time. But nationally, does it mean that a Republican candidate like Trump or DeSantis, or potentially Greg Abbott, if he's still maybe in the mix at some point to run for president, which I never completely discount that. You know, there has to be sort of a, as you've said, Jeremy, there has to be at least some thought among Abbott and his team that if Trump was to flame out, Abbott would, could be one of those guys to jump in and run for president, maybe him or, uh, or Glenn Youngkin um, up in Virginia. But you look at the issue of immigration as one that can get you through the primary but I don't know if it's still the kind of issue that can win you the general election in a national contest. Well, potentially, right? The presidential elections right Maybe. now are so yeah. narrow, right? You know, where it's just like it, it's sad to think that like the entire presidency of the United States comes down to what Wisconsin thinks. <laughs> you know, when you mm -hmm. start talking about building a wall, of course, the people in Wisconsin are probably thinking, "What with Canada? Is there, are we building the the maple wall to keep the Canadians out?" <laughs> no, but mm -hmm. the, the whole message is Trump and uh, Biden potentially talking about illegal immigration 
issues in Wisconsin to yep. try to swing over the one swing state that seems to be left in America. You know, it's just, it's kind of crazy that <laughs> some guy in Racine, Wisconsin holds the fate of our entire nation and whether or not we get <laughs> immigration reform in his hand. <laughs> it's just yeah. amazing. Well, and you saw the stuff where um, Biden, uh, in what was called a historic move, went to go speak to some of the striking auto workers. Um, and of course, that would uh, disproportionately affect folks in the Midwest. These are the kind of folks that Trump was talking to and having some success with in the 2016 election. Trump also went and talked to some workers, but not at a union event. Um, and the the politics of of organized labor um, and immigration these things don't line up either, right? I mean, the, the one of the reasons that Trump was able to win over these people in places like Wisconsin, which you mentioned, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, is because he was the guy speaking in a protectionist way about not letting the immigrants have the jobs, not letting those jobs go overseas, right? Um, I do believe that the way he talked about that in the 2016 election gained Republican votes in those places that they hadn't won before, but it cost them votes in places like Texas and in the rest of the Sun Belt, where we have all this migrant labor, where people understand and know that these are the folks who do these jobs in these places. There's a reason that there is a seamless supply chain up through Mexico for Toyota of North America. They have their headquarters in Plano, I happen to be in Dallas today. Their North American headquarters is about five miles from where I am here. Um, they have that huge plant in San Antonio um, where those parts come up from Mexico and they assemble the trucks there in Bear County. Um, and so th this, uh, this nonstop attack on Mexico, which is still our biggest trading partner that we do so much business with, um, it, it's really counterproductive for our economy. I do think that voters are smart enough in Texas to know that that has a real impact when you go to the Midwest and you say we're going to we're going to promote protectionist policies when free trade has been good for Texas. And, you know, all this migration has been good for Texas, it's, you know, full stop. You know, it's, it's great for us. And, yeah, it's been it's been uh, to the detriment of some of these people in other places. Um, I think that if you're if you're going to try to wage that same battle that, that Trump did in 2016, over, you know, trying to try and trying to win over that sort of disgruntled worker in the Midwest, that does have a, a sort of a ripple effect for the politics in other places like Texas, where our economic situation is different. Yeah. And, and you don't have to even imagine this too much because we've kind of seen this happen before in, you know, Texas politics. Look at where George W. Bush was uh, in, you know, the, the, the 2000s. Right. Here we had, you know, this president who could speak Spanish uh, was for free trade, uh, you know, wasn't being, you know, so protectionist that it scared people away, but could win over, you know, you know, the, the working class people. And he could still win Hispanics because of his positions, right? Like, think about that time period. Like, I remember that very well because, you know, he, he mopped the floor with John Kerry, <laughs> like everybody, he just beat the daylights out of him. You know, he beat, you know, Al Gore too, you know, it's just like in most places, of course, Florida is another debate altogether. But, you know, this guy like ran up big victories in Texas and nationally uh, with this kind of way to, to work both ends of it. But and what we learned from the Trump era is that, like, if you just, you know, if you get more 
protectionist about it, you can start kind of eroding, you know, the thing that made Republicans at one point start thinking that there'd be just one party in America that would be all Republican. They were so dominant in the 2000s with, you know, car rove, masterminding, all this stuff or whatever. You know, it's like they were going to you know, run this country. And then now here we are. It's like, no, it's not only did they not run the country, but here we have our second Democratic administration since then. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Well, maybe if we could take a time machine back into the 2000s, we would see that, you know, that immigration issue, if you play it a little bit smarter, you mm -hmm. can win Hispanic votes and have immigration reform and right. have border security. You can mm -hmm. do all those things. I think the Bush administration partially showed us that pathway. Uh, but of course... We're now way past that point at this right. point in Republican politics. Well, and, you know, uh, to bolster that point, I mean, it starts before that. I mean, you go all the way back to the Reagan administration. He did the last big, uh, you know, immigration and border security reform doing it all together, doing the last, um, you know, rewrite of our immigration laws in this country. So think about, you know, the nonstop drumbeat comments from Abbott, Ted Cruz um, and other and Trump and others. They say, let's just enforce the laws that we have. Well, the laws that were put in place in the 1980s don't reflect the reality of 2023 at all. If you look at the politics of it, um, from the late 80s into the 90s and to the mid-2000s, what you're talking about in that era of the George W. Bush presidency, if you look at the vote share that Republicans were getting among Hispanics, it went up every election. Every election, after one after another, Hispanics, kept, more of them kept voting for Republicans. And if you look at the years right around 2006, 2007, when the right wing of the Republican Party went into full revolt mode against Bush over him trying to push an immigration reform, at that time, those numbers with Hispanics and Republicans went down, 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 down. Trump was able to move those numbers around a little bit, and he remade the map in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, the, the, the inclusive message from the Republicans, we are way past anything like that as you said, and it's, um, you know, it's just the reality of what we have now. And until Democrats can compete in Texas, this is the kind of stuff we're going to, we're going to get special sessions like this that's coming up where they're going to focus on being as harsh on immigrants and, and cracking down on immigration, uh, trying to be as tough about all that, uh, as they can possibly be. Now we did mention in that uh, conversation about that, you know, some of the, uh, detriment to our service members, some of whom were deployed to the border. We saw some deaths and we saw some, actually remember we saw some, uh, bad living conditions for folks who were deployed, uh, for operation Lone Star. But you focused, uh, this week and have some stories uh, out in the Houston Chronicle, about conditions for our military, which as I listened to some of this, Jeremy, made me feel kind of sick about, you know, the kind of treatment that our, you know, fighting men and women have to put up with. These are, I mean, they have a hard enough job, right? But you started to look into this. There was a big report out from the GAO, right? Yeah, let's take a, a quick step back. You, know, the, you, you hear all this talk about people, you know, supporting the military, all this rhetoric about how we love our troops. Uh, but man, it's hard to see it right now. It's like when this government shutdown hits uh, on you know this weekend, as we're expecting. Uh, guess who loses their paycheck? The military. All those soldiers, uh, the 1.3 million soldiers working for the United States of America, will have to keep working, but they just won't get paid. And look at those uh, those. Uh, uh, promotions that were, you know, held up and they're still being blocked to this very minute in Congress for some politics. 
And so again, those guys are the ones who aren't getting promoted. And then on top of all that, I come across a report from the General Accounting Office, the GAO, which looked into the conditions of barracks all across the United States of America. And what they found was so horrific. Like the conditions in our barracks are like not just like, oh, these guys are soldiers and, you know, men and women who can, you know, they need to be a little uncomfortable to do their job. No, no. Mm -hmm. This was like, you know, locks are broken. You know, uh, there's no fire uh, uh, extinguishers or equipment around. Uh, there are squatters living in, you know, some of the barracks. There's mold everywhere. P you know, soldiers are getting sick from just being mm -hmm. in their rooms. Uh, so it's really astounding, and it's amazing how pervasive the problem is. There was a hearing on this in Washington, and uh, Representative Don Bacon, is he the chairman of this committee uh, yeah, uh, that's looking into this? Yeah, it's a, it's a subcommittee of the mm -hmm. House Armed Services Committee. Okay, and he was laying out some of what's been found by government inspectors in these barracks that Jeremy's talking about. Last week, the Government Accountability Office published a report detailing deplorable and frankly, inexcusable conditions of our unaccompanied housing for junior service members. Sewage overflow, water quality issues, rodent infestations, mold, broken air conditioned units, and sweltering heat, and others, all have been found in these facilities. Facilities that service members are expected to require and required to live in. That's what I say, I was a base commander at Ramstein and at Offutt Air Force Base. If I would have had these conditions in any of our barracks, I would have got fired. One of the things that we want to know today, where is the accountability at with these barracks? Has anybody been held accountable? And what are we going to do to, what are we going to, do to get this right and get it fixed? Here's some of what lawmakers heard about how bad it is at these facilities. One of the most common complaints we heard was about mold. There is a leak and black mold in the shower, one resident told us, and maintenance still won't fix it no matter how often it's reported. Another resident said, mold in the barracks makes you feel expendable, like we don't matter. A number of the facilities we visited had broken HVAC systems. One Marine said, I often wake up at night sweating from the heat, itching from bed bugs, and feeling like I am suffocating. And this from an airman. It can be really challenging to come in from a day of working where you may be exposed to the cold or to the heat all day, and then get no relief from the temperatures when you return to your room. That's Elizabeth Field with the Government Accountability Office. Jeremy, there was a lot more to that testimony as well, right? Yeah, it's unbelievable. The, the report on this one was sickening. It was hard to kind of read the report. You know, look, GAO reports are usually these really bland documents right. that you really got to, like, keep yourself awake. I know. You know uh, but my stomach was churning as I see the pictures. I mean, and, and if you check out my story on HoustonChronicle.com or Ascension Express News, you'll see that like we have some of the photos of some of these outrageous conditions. Uh, but it, it, it's so bad. There's one point in the reports where there, you know, the GAO inspectors are talking to these soldiers at military bases all around the uh, around the country, and uh, they tell them that some of them are considering getting married so they can get approved to get off. In the barracks like listen to what that is like we're gonna do some sham marriages just so mm -hmm. we can get out of this place right what that's and, and what's amazing about it and and as she ended up uh, as fields talked about in her testimony uh the 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 you know department of defense doesn't even know the extent of the problem because they don't have a way to assess 
all of their bases and the upkeep of the maintenance of the barracks. They simply don't know. There are some barracks where they give like a 90% score out of 100, and mm -hmm. yet there is an inhabitable place. It's like soldiers can't live in there. And so there's this massive disconnect where you have like, we have, you know, and Bacon said it in his testimony or in his, uh, when he was speaking, you know, about the report, he says that like, look, we already have a military recruitment and retention problem. It's like, now can you imagine trying to tell the families of some 18 year old kid that, oh yeah, send your, your son or daughter to us and we're going to put them in a rat infested, non-heated room where their own safety is at at risk. There's one point uh, where they they were uh, they 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 found a, uh, the ex spouse of one of the soldiers had broken back into the barracks and assaulted his ex wife in the facility. In the facility, it's wow. like it's like you just you can see like the locks aren't working, the windows are busted. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable. There was one soldier who ended up saying that like it felt like it, uh, being in a cheap motel or a prison. It's like, these are our soldiers who are supposed to be getting ready for the day to defend yeah. our nation. And like, and like, it's how do you, how do you have your military readiness going mm -hmm. into that? And, and the last thing I'll point out, this is such an important Texas politics story. You know, it's like, you know, I've had people ask me, why is this so important? We have 15 military bases in the state. We have over a hundred thousand young men and women on these bases in conditions that we don't even know how bad they are. I'm sure there's some soldier who's been on Fort Hood, now Fort Cavazos, uh, or you know somebody out at, uh, at, at Bliss or down in Lackland who's nodding their head hearing all of this. They know right. that we've had mold issues and all kinds of maintenance issues, but this falls on the back burner. Uh, because it, it's not sexy to go before Congress and ask for, you know, we need, you know, $40 million for a new barracks. Mm -hmm. Or we can spend $130 billion on a fighter jet that we may right. not use. Which one do you think they want to go for? Well, may not use. I mean, just looking at the numbers, and it's, it, it, it is mind-blowing the amount of money that the United States spends on defense. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I'm, prob I'm probably going to sound like a conservative talk show host for a second. This is not like they don't have resources. Correct. It's not like the answer would be that they need more money. That can't Correct. be it. Be, it. That can't be it, right? Because the U.S. If you if you just punch into Google, how much does the U.S. military spend, or how much is it worth? What's the total spend? Uh, the United States le leads the ranking of countries with highest military spending uh, for the year 2022, uh, with 877 billion dollars dedicated to the military, which is only about 40 percent of the total military spending worldwide in the same year which amounts to about 2 to 2.2 trillion dollars that the Department of Defense has 2.04 trillion distributed among the branches of the military right and so it's not as if they don't have the cash to deal with this but like you said they're spending a, a lot of money on weapon systems that we don't use that should, that all should be look I'm not saying that we don't need them there needs to maybe be a real assessment of all that what do we need what do we not need we do know that and you know folks in Tarrant County won't like me saying it some of these things are straight up jobs programs. We build certain programs, you know, certain weapon systems in certain areas in Colorado, Texas, and elsewhere. And it is sold to people as a jobs program for people in that area. You know, whether that be through defense contractors um, the, or the military with direct spending, whatever it is, there's a lot of good jobs. If those people go live in a house 
you know, in, in a suburban neighborhood in Colorado and Texas. In the meantime, the people who are going to put their ass on the line, if they have to get deployed, they're going to live in the kind of uh, conditions you're talking about in this report. Well, and it reminds me of uh, Reckless Kelly has a song called American Blood, where they talk about how the brass is fighting or, or uh, isn't fighting, but they sure as hell taking a stand. This kind of fits in that same kind of mode where it's like the, the upper levels of the Pentagon, they're all in nice housing. They're not dealing with mold. They're not dealing with, in one case, there was like a methane gas leak into the rooms. And one of the inspectors asked, well, what is that? And they said, oh, it's just the methane gas from the plumbing leak. It's like, you know, that can kill you, right? Like if you keep breathing that day in, day out, it's like, but again, the top, the upper brass isn't having to deal with any of this stuff. You know, the, the politicians who are saying, oh, we love our soldiers. They're not having to live in there. Right. It's like, maybe like, uh, from what you were saying, I'm assuming there's enough money in this budget to not treat our men and w- women in the, on these military bases like crap. There's got to be enough, right? Continue to follow it, my friend. Put, put, put all those pictures in the newspaper so that people can see what our, our – and, and, you know, I know this, this matters to people everywhere, but especially our folks in San Antonio, which is Military USA, I know they care about this. You need to light up, light up Chip Roy's uh, phone line about this. What's he ever said about it? Yeah, you know, it, it, other people who represent – you know, here you have Chip Roy talking about, you know, shutting down the U.S. government over what Karl Rove described as arguing uh, you know, between the difference between this and this. And when he said this and this, he was just moving his fingers just a little bit. You know, we're arguing about just you know, numbers on the margins of the United States budget, the continuing resolution to continue the government. And some of the people who represent Military USA are not focused in on, number one, denying you know, members of the military their paycheck, and number two, the kind of conditions that they're having to live in. Well, and, and that's what's so, uh, maybe that's what's getting my ire up right now. It's like there's here we are. Like we know these men and women are in moldy, unsafe barracks right now. This isn't from like ten years ago. They're in them right now, and they're not going to get their paychecks because of the federal government shutdown. Mm-hmm. It's like, could you imagine? I was like, what am I doing here at that point? It's like, why would you ever consider, like, re-upping your enlistment? It's like, it, we are just, you know, it's, it's really an embarrassment. And I just, I just don't understand how, if you ever met anybody in the military, like, so, you know, a lot of the, the old timers tell you about how garbage their, dorm, their uh, barracks were. But mm-hmm. this is, like, like, so bad now. It's like, the, they, they just haven't been maintaining these facilities. Uh, and something's got to change on this. So it's like, it just seems like how do we recruit people to do this stuff that most of us don't want to do, right? You know, these people are already kind of doing this voluntarily and we're putting them as that one soldier say in a dark unair conditioned room, you know, to, to end the day. It's like, what, why would we do that to that guy? And it's like, yeah, let's, it's re- let's help him out. It's really unreal. Uh, check out the stories there at HoustonChronicle.com. The fallout continues from the impeachment trial, which I'm not sure I would have expected this much talk about it right after the trial. Jeremy, it's kind of gone on and on, although it's uh, gone on at the, um, I think at the, basically at the decision of the lieutenant governor who continues to push it. He's been on a media blitz, as you saw over the last week. Now, it may be that the Lieutenant Governor is feeling like the little governor because he didn't get as much attention as Paxton. 
after the acquittal. So Paxton, as you pointed out, I think on last week's show, Paxton was on about a dozen talk shows, some of them uh, national shows. He was on the Tucker Carlson show. We, we, you know, we played some of that. Uh, we played, dear listener, we spared you, and we played just the right amount for you of Paxton and Tucker Carlson. You don't need any more than that. If you go back to the last episode, that's the perfect dose of Tucker and, and Ken Paxton. So he was on Tucker Carlson. He was on the Michael Berry show in Houston. I think uh, Paxton was on the Mark Davis show in Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, but he was also on the Lou Dobbs show, which you listened to some of that. And the sort of the feeling of those interviews is Paxton beginning his retribution tour, right? He's going to go around and attack Republicans who attacked him. And some folks are going to say that that's, that's fair game. The turnabout is fair play. But the lieutenant governor is doing something different. And you know, we'll continue to cover what Paxton's saying about other Republicans. That, you know, that's going to be at least an issue in the primary. There are some folks who think that it's going to be the issue. And I kind of don't think so, but we'll see. I, I'm, you know, the jury's out. The jury was in on the impeachment. They acquitted. <laughs> the jury's out on what it's going to mean for Texas politics going forward. How do you like that? But Lieutenant Governor Patrick's doing something different. He's trying to explain not just his role in the impeachment trial, but also the Senate's role. Um, and as you remember, he had that speech right after the acquittal, which in the minds of a lot of people just sort of, you know, ripped, ripped down, you know, this, uh, this cheap veneer of an impartial judge. And he just basically said, hey, the, the way the House did this was all wrong. Some of the whistleblowers this week, the, those who turned in Ken Paxton to the FBI, they said that Patrick's speech was shocking. Um, I saw where Rusty Harden, who's one of the prosecutors in the deal, um, he said that it was one of the most classless, quote, classless things he's ever seen, that right after the verdict is in, the judge gives a speech about how one side did it all wrong. <laughs> so, But, you know, welcome to the Texas Senate. Things are a little different. There was a news conference this week from some of the whistleblowers, those people who went to the FBI, the folks who had worked for Ken Paxton, and they suspected him of some criminal behavior. That's why they went to the federal police about their boss, which is no small thing to do. I mean, they must have had some understanding that he did something wrong. And these are, you know, career folks, uh, very conservative uh, attorneys who have been around for a long time, people who believed in Ken Paxton and his mission as a rock rib conservative. And at some point, these whistleblowers who went to the cops, they say, you know what, I think he might be kind of crooked. I think he might be into some things that are, you know, not legit. So they go to the FBI. After the impeachment trial was over, the whistleblowers like um, this guy, Blake Brickman, he said, you know what, that trial might be over, but we're not done. The impeachment process is over, but we are not going away. We are not going away. Brickman Again, he's one of those former employees at the AG's office who turned Paxton into the FBI. And Brickman, of course, was also on the stand during the impeachment trial in the Senate. Um, and he said, you know, there's a whole lot left, uh, you know, in this story. The Paxton's got a securities fraud prosecution against him in Houston. There is a grand jury that's convened in San Antonio looking into some of Paxton's connections with this guy, Nate Paul. And as you know, the whistleblowers have a lawsuit against Paxton and the Office of the Attorney General to try to recover something for being, uh, you know, screwed out of their jobs. They've sued under what's called the Whistleblower Act. And I think this is kind of, it's kind of been lost in a lot of this coverage. I know that some people are going to say, yeah, I get it. But um, I think that it's pretty important to understand that these people who reported their boss 
to law enforcement, you know, they lost their jobs. They're looking for some, uh, you know, uh, they're looking for some, uh, not just monetary um, relief, but they're also looking for some kind of justice. Because there's a reason you have a whistleblower act, is if there are people in state government who see that their bosses are doing bad things, you want them to report it. I mean, the net. I mean, think about the chilling effect of what we just saw in that trial, Jeremy. Was it, the the effect would be that if you're somebody who works at a state agency, or you work for a legislator, let's say you work for one of the senators who voted to acquit, the message those senators would be sending is that if you are in state government and you see wrongdoing, there is no reason for you to tell anybody about it, because this is going to be the net effect: is nothing's going to happen to the person that you reported. Uh, here's what Brickman had to say about continuing to fight Paxton. For us, this case has always been about more than money. It's about truth. It's about justice. And although political pressure may have thwarted justice this month, we will continue our fight. I saw that uh, the lead attorney for the defense, Tony Busby, who is also a Houston City Council hopeful, he sat down with the Houston Chronicle editorial board this week, and he told the board that, it, because they asked him about you know, what he's going to do at City Hall if he wins. But they also, of course, wanted to know his thoughts after the impeachment trial. And Busby said something that I thought was quite candid and quite revealing. He said that his audience, and we said a version of this as our analysis during the trial, Jeremy, but he just said it, you know, he's saying the quiet part out loud. To the, to the editorial board, Busby said that his audience wasn't the senators so much as it was the people at home, right? The people who are watching news coverage of it people who are in the base of the Republican Party who would be the ones to politically put pressure on senators to vote a certain way. And Busby told the editorial board, I think he said that, that it was his feeling that there were you know, maybe five or six Republican senators who would have been the swing senators who could have gone either way. They, you know, they went into the trial not necessarily being a vote to convict or acquit, and they were going to sit and listen to the evidence. And Busby said a big part of what he and the rest of the you know, defense team were doing was trying to create an environment along with – and he didn't say this part. Uh, I'm, I'm adding this in – that Busby and the defense team, along with these third-party groups, which also gave a bunch of money to the lieutenant governor, the judge in the case, they're all trying to create an environment – in which the jurors in the case would feel the need and feel pressure to vote to acquit. So he was talking right past the senators to their voters to try to pressure them through those voters to vote a certain way, the evidence be damned. Now, I will add, in fairness to Busby, he did say that in his estimation that the prosecution just didn't make their case, that they didn't have the evidence. And he laid it out for the editorial board saying, hey, uh, I think that there were at least a couple of witnesses who took the stand who took all the air out of the prosecution's case. He was talking about the first two whistleblowers who were on the stand. I believe that that's who he was talking about, including Jeff Mateer, who was the first one on the stand. Now, as far as the lieutenant governor, at least a seven or eight day media blitz to try to explain himself and the way he handled everything, because I think he's gotten really frustrated because he's getting criticism from a lot of folks over all that money he took from Paxton supporters. And even in a video that was produced by his own team, this wasn't a WFAA interview or an NBC5 interview or a KHOU or ABC13 interview or an interview with the Chronicle or the Wall Street Journal or anybody else. This was in a video that Patrick himself, his team put this video together. And in his own video, which he sort of billed as a like a documentary on the inside of the impeachment trial. 
<laughs> I watch these things so you don't have to. Um, even in the thing that his own team produced, Jeremy, Patrick felt the need to explain that $3 million contribution. You know the old saying, if you're explaining, you're losing? I was on the air with our friend Chad Hasty out in Lubbock uh, this week. And Hasty, who's a friend of mine, he says, hey, Scott, I think there's something to be said about the fact that the lieutenant governor has been all over the place. He's trying to be transparent. He's, he's on television. He's on radio. He put out his own video trying to explain what had happened. And I said, well, what about, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing. I mean, the, the speaker who completely disagrees with Patrick, he put out an op-ed in the Beaumont Enterprise, right, in the, in the newspaper there. He's put out some tweets, and that's about it. He hasn't been doing interviews on this, and the speaker hasn't moved an inch. His argument is still basically to say, as we mentioned last week, the speaker is still saying, hey, the House did the right thing. We think this guy is corrupt, and he shouldn't be in office. He's essentially saying the House would vote the same way if they did it again. Uh, Patrick says that the House did it all wrong. And listen to this. Patrick, in the video that his team produced, he had one of his former staffers, Sherry Sylvester. He had Sylvester ask him about the $3 million that he took from Paxton supporters. Every news story that I have read has pointed out that you took over $3 million in campaign contributions yes. from the uh, side of uh, donors who were very much in favor of Paxton uh, being acquitted. Right. The question they never asked, the Texas press being the Texas press, right. is how much did the other side give you? About $3 million. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, that's not true at all. And, and listen, Jeremy, he says that it's not true. It's not me saying it's not true. He says it's not true. So he took a $3 million contribution from a group called Defend Texas Liberty PAC, which we have pointed out here. That's the group that was just lighting up Republican voters all over the state with text messages, social media posts. They were running billboards against uh, Texas House members who voted for impeachment. They were really trying to put the pressure on senators to vote for acquittal, which they did. Now, Patrick says that the amount he raised was about $6 million. So he took the $3 million contribution, and I've been trying to research this, and I'm, my research is not complete. Think about this. It's possible that the $3 million contribution is the largest single contribution in the history of Texas. Have you seen a bigger one? Remember that it was shocking to people after Winter Storm Uri that Governor Abbott had taken a $1 million contribution from Kelsey Warren, who runs uh, Energy Transfer Partners, after uh, you know that company made off billions in profits over seven days during that storm. And remember, Beto was running around saying that this was blood money and all that. It was shocking to a lot of people. This is three times that amount with $2 million as a loan right before he's going to preside over this trial. Now, I said that Patrick said that his own argument isn't really true. Listen to this. And as somebody who has covered Patrick for a long time, I've known him for a long time. I've known him since we were radio competitors in Houston going all the way back to 2003 like 2003, 2002, 2003. Dan Patrick is so good at just putting a blizzard of words out there where he, he says a bunch of things and at the end of it, it'd be easy for you to go, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, he's probably right. Mm -hmm. that, sure, that's true. But listen to what he says here, Jeremy. He's asking you to believe something that he himself says part of it is not true at all. All right, listen carefully. All right, he's talking now about the other $3 million that was contributed to his campaign at the same time that he was getting $3 million from Paxton supporters. The pro-Paxton side, I say pro-Paxton, you know, it's clear that that PAC uh, gave me uh, $3 million in, 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 
in cash and a loan. But the other side, and it wasn't TLR as a pack. I mean, I think they gave me a little bit of money. But it was a lot of the other money came from all the donors, most of them to TLR. And look, some of those people at TLR were supporters of PACTA, but in general it was seen that that money was coming from the other side that maybe would not have been totally pro-PACTA. So of the $6 million, it was $3 million on each side, but no one ever knew that. So did you hear that, Jeremy? He said that for the $3 million that wasn't from Defend Texas Liberty PAC, that some of those people who gave $3 million would have been pro-Paxton and some would be against Paxton. He said that some of it is from contributors to Texans for Lawsuit Reform, which he has said he doesn't believe that they were really orchestrating the impeachment, that they didn't have anything to do with the impeachment. But he's saying if you would just disregard all of that, he's just suggesting that he did take $3 million from those who are pro-Paxton and $3 million from people who are anti-Paxton. But the explanation he just gave isn't that at all. It's that the other $3 million was people who just contribute for whatever reason. Right? These are people who would just give to him no matter what. Right? These are business leaders. These are people who are this, your normal contributor, people who did. And in Texas, a normal contributor can be a lot. Right? It can be 100000 It can be 50000 It can be 1000 It could be 500 it, it could be whatever. But when you get into these numbers of $3 million from one group whose stated purpose is the acquittal of the guy whose trial you're about to oversee, and then you try to say, oh, yeah, but I took all this other money too. Um, I, I mean, he's... He's really a study in how to say something without saying it, right? Like he, or, or just, you know, I mean, he's, he is masterful. I've said it this way before, but you know how, and you're a music guy, so you get this. I think Evan is too. You know how a, a, a jazz musician can play a solo, they can play a series of notes that makes you hear notes that they didn't play? Right, they can make they can they can they can put a, like a musical thought in your head. Um, Patrick does that with words. He just threw all those words out there, and he make by the end of it, he's making you think, "Oh yeah, look, he just took you know about the same amount from both sides." When that's actually not what he said at all, Jeremy. Well, and, and added to the problem, like his mistake in this is that he didn't just take the three million dollars from the defend liberty people to who were obviously wanted. Paxton to be freed or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. He took their money, and but then he gives that speech that is exactly what they wanted to hear, that they themselves could have written. He said mm -hmm. exactly what they were thinking. He could have just taken the high road at the end of that trial and said not nothing. said a word. And then have a press conference later and you know and, and you know throw your mud at the you know, Texas House or whatever you feel like you need to. But for him to say exactly what <laughs> You know the you know defend liberty people wanted him, right? To say after getting three million dollars, it's like come on, it's just like it, it doesn't take hardly any jump to say you take three million three million dollars from the groups and then you preside over the trial and then you say this and so now people are going oh you were clearly in the tank you can see how right. it all connects can't you Dan it's like it's it's mm -hmm. dot 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 just it, next time there there are times this is the toughest thing for politicians there are times where you don't say anything. Here we right. go. We'll, we'll do another. He we'll can't do another. Do that. Here's another yeah, song. But he can't lyric. do that. <laughs> here's another <laughs> he song lyric. <laughs> Let's go to Chris Stapleton with you know yeah. Justin Timberlake. You know, sometimes the best way to say something is to say nothing at all, right? right? Just, just let it go, Dan. Let everybody else fight it out, 
and then you, you cannot you, help it. And and then just they take the high road, and and like and people will respect you for that in you know all kinds of different circles. But for you to jump in there, it makes the Wall Street Journal come out and say Dan Patrick had his finger on the scale, right. and then now like now look where we're at. Now it's like Dan Patrick has that tied around him, you know, like like somehow he's like a a, a total you know take the cash, give you what you want. Yeah. you know, from the the podium. Yeah, and I, you know, I and I think this is fair, Jeremy. We, you and I talked about this for weeks or for months, actually. Um, I have gone out of my way to be fair to Patrick. I said a version of this on the show before the trial started, but but you know, but around the time that we did see the report of three million dollars going to him from this pro Paxton pack, I said at that time, and this is true that politicians in Texas and elsewhere, I know, but in, in Texas, it happens all the time. A politician will take a contribution from a group and you know that that group wants them to do a certain thing, but then the politician doesn't do it. That happens all the time, right? And you can ask any of the business groups in Texas about that. You could ask uh, the realtors, the Texas Association of Business, manufacturers, uh, you'd go down the list. AT&T as an entity, you, you could ask any of them, have they ever given contributions to politicians and then not gotten anything for their money. Um, yeah, that happens all the time with this. And I hate to be so cynical. That's why I was trying to be so fair about it before. And I think I'm still being fair about it. We just now have this evidence that, that you're talking about, which is he could have just said nothing after the trial. He could have not done all these interviews. I'll give you a perfect real time example. If he hadn't said that in that interview with Sherry Sylvester, I wouldn't be talking about it right now. But he's still talking about it. So if he if he would just stop trying to explain himself, no one would be talking about this $3 million contribution. There are two things that he could do. One would be very affordable, which is to just stop talking about it. The other would be to give the money back. I'm going to make this point, and this is my last point about this. I think it is. Patrick, <laughs> Patrick doesn't need the $3 million, including the $2 million loan. Without it, he still has about... $20 million in the bank. And you heard him last week tell Monica Madden at KXAN, well, you know, I mean, I'll be up for re-election again in, uh, what, in 2026, and so you got to start raising money. He already has $20 million in the bank. He could take the $3 million from all those other people who he tried to cast as the, what, as the anti-Paxton people. He could take that $3 million and just have that be his, you know, his starting point for his, uh, you know, his raising money going forward for re-election once again in 2026. But instead, he has to have this money that taints the entire process when he does not need it. He has $20 million in the bank without it. And, 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 and what's so disappointing about it, okay, uh, I may be in the minority voice in this, you know, but, okay. you right. know, listening to him, like, handle the trial, which was a very difficult trial to try to be go from lieutenant governor, politician, to being a judge. I thought he did relatively okay and like, leaning on the judicial experts around him, trying to administer, like, rulings, you know, it's like, I, I'm sure people can quibble that you know, he was favoring one way or the other. It wasn't blatantly obvious to me as I watched a lot of the trial. Right. Uh until he the gave speech. that speech, right? <laughs> like, like when he gave well, it, that speech, it's like he he just he, he just made this announcement that like even though he was getting some praise in some you know areas of the press for kind of doing a pretty fair job, yeah. he comes out and say, "I never thought this trial was fair." Right? It's like what? He, I, okay. Right. Well, he, he, well, 
well, why, why did you just tell us that? It's like he had a chance to come out like with a lot of praise for a guy who maybe had been in like favor of Paxton being acquitted and just kind of had played it relatively straight, some quibbles here and there, but gave nobody right. anything to kind of work off of. But he basically handed the Wall Street Journal the first editorial, which they have been now talking about and trying to defend themselves against every single day it feels like and, and like, you know what I it go is on twitter right. at some point where dan patrick isn't putting out a video <laughs> or an op-ed or having you know press releases sent out saying that he's not really bought by this group it's like the more you're saying that the more i'm like wait do i need to look into this more it's like right. and that is kind of what's happening now everybody's like now connected this thing you say something seven times it's in my head say it to me once i might forget <laughs> but you right. say it seven times and like I'm now starting to go, okay, maybe there is something to this if you're protesting so much about yeah. this characterization. Another way to say what you're saying is um, he handled the trial in, in a way that it was debatable as to whether or not he handled it fairly, right? People would sit around and debate it, right? Yeah. In the minds of a lot of people, when he gave that speech, he moved it to non-debatable, that he was in the tank, that the fix was in, that it was yeah. always going to go this way, um, and that and that you know I've heard from a lot of Republicans who feel like this guy was completely bought and paid for by this Defend Texas Liberty Pack, and Patrick with those groups, with the Empower Texans crowd, with the Texas Scorecard, all those third party groups that are funded by a few West Texas billionaires, he's always had sort of one foot in and one foot out with those folks. You know, he's glad to have their support, but he's not you know in line completely with everything that they do. He's got plenty of other support from business groups and others who have to work with somebody like the lieutenant governor. But I can tell you for right now, there's a lot of what you would call traditional Republicans, Republican classic uh, donors around the state. Uh, who are not interested in giving money to Patrick after they saw the way that trial played out. And it could have been debatable among that crowd if he hadn't given that speech you're talking about. Yeah, it, it just it just feels like, again, it, I know it's hard. People in politics naturally just always want to fill the space with words. <laughs> it's like, I get it. you know. But that's the point where you just say, you know, he's acquitted, boom, gavel out kind of move on you know when somebody asks you in the move press the you know answer the question how you need to but you don't have to you know say from the podium that i've thought this been garbage since may that's <laughs> basically what it read like that is what he, he said yeah he, right. he was quoting john smithy and what he said on the house floor in right. may it's like yeah. there's a reason that was still, that was either in his head since May, or he mm. went back to look for it while of the course. trial was going on. Either way is a bad sign that you were looking for, you know, ways to say this trial has been a waste of my time and the waste of the Senate's time, and y'all never had any evidence since May when I first thought this. <laughs> it's mm. like I was yeah. never going to be an unbiased judge. That's, it just, it just. It's so disappointing, right? Because I, I always like I've always thought like Dan Patrick's slightly ahead of everybody politically. Yes, you know, it's like he's a right. smart guy. There is no doubt he knows how to work the political levers. Like he's mm -hmm. he knows how to, you know, appeal to voters. He's got a lot of things going for him on that front. But this just seemed like such a weird decision. You know, when I yeah. heard him start making that speech, I'm like. Whoa, there is a time well, to take Dade feeling out to the back shed and, you know, mm -hmm. like start going off. But this was not it. This was not the moment to do it. Like do it someplace else away from this trial and then go after Dade feeling if you want to. But don't right. don't do it in the same 
connection. It just made it all look and feel like, oh, no, this was always about retribution. This was always mm-hmm. about vengeance. And this is like, you know, the end of you because like I, you wasted my summer. Yeah, if there's an agreement, I thought it was my last point, but if there's an agreement, you keep giving me more things to think <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's, well, you're, you're just a you're talented co-host. Um, it, it makes me think that if there was some agreement over that $2 million loan, that the agreement would not just be to, uh, you know, for Paxton to walk, that he gets an acquittal, but also that Patrick would help this group defend Texas Liberty with their attacks on the speaker. Because that is their big organizing principle: is attacking the speaker as insufficiently conservative. He's not doing. They they always make these arguments that he's not pro life enough. He's not you know tough enough on the border. He's not uh, you know somebody who's cracking down on transgender people enough, and all this sort of stuff. They are always organizing around this idea that the speaker's not conservative enough. So Patrick actually helped them with two things, which is getting their boy off in this trial and continuing the the attacks on the speaker. On the same day, that's what, you know, if, if the fix wasn't in, if it wasn't quote unquote, I hate using terms like rigged because then the people think you're talking, you're, you're speaking the way Trump would speak. But the, the speaker basically said that the trial was rigged in the Senate. These guys are at each other's throats as possible as the governor gets ready to ask them to work on immigration and school vouchers together. I think the set, the, the stage is perfectly set for the special session. Well, and, and can I do that? Like, can you imagine like, you know, watching a, like a, a football game, you know, it's like you have like the Dallas Cowboys are in this game. They end up mm-hmm. losing and the referee comes out right when the game ends and says, you know, their game plan was garbage from the start. <laughs> it's like, that was what happened here. <laughs> it's like, why would yeah, you what? let that happen? <laughs> no, no, you can talk about it afterwards if somebody asks you about a specific play, but don't sit yeah. there going, I've hated this game since I set foot on this field. <laughs> it's like, that is not the right time sir yeah wait till you take the striped shirt off that'd be the time to time to do that all right that is definitely enough show um next week uh we will be programming note we will be off next week um so we just need a a little break because guess what in october we're going to be up to our necks in immigration vouchers whatever else i'll see you folks at various events around the state watch my uh, twitter feed for that um, Jeremy's newsletter, you can sign up for it, comes out every weekday and you can get the link uh, to that on his Twitter page, his X page, Jeremy S. Wallace. It's the pinned tweet at the top of his uh, Twitter feed, Jeremy S. Wallace. You can find me, I'm on Twitter as well if you want to follow. It's just my name, at Scott Braddock. Uh, you should be a subscriber at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com. My thanks to our producer, Evan Scherer, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.